Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life, if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is October the 18th, 2018, and this is episode 2312 of the Survival Podcast. And uh, I've got a good one for you today, lots of variety. Uh, I decided we will go ahead and do the listener call show today instead of uh, adjusting for the missed Monday and, and flipping it back to a Just Jack show. Uh, we've got some good calls today. I have a question on choosing duck breeds, including considering Muscovy ducks, choosing a domain name in regard to .com, .net, you know, et cetera, and, and, and what that's really all about uh, for you entrepreneur types. Testing your food for nutrient density, is it even worth doing? And this is maybe for a homesteader that's doing a market garden and selling some product or what have you. Um, I'll tell you why. My answer in general is probably not. I'll tell you some things you can do if you want to, but I'll tell you why I probably wouldn't. The question on wild strawberry as a ground cover, and more in, in the event, is it having a negative effect on trees? I, I don't think so. Uh, I've never heard of anything like it before, but I'll talk a little bit about what you could do to maybe get those trees going. Irregardless, yes, I know it's not a word. I like it. Irregardless. I'm going to say it one more time because it's Thursday and I can do whatever I want. Irregardless. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm just a jerk sometimes. Irregardless of the ground cover that you have around your trees. Um, a question on when is the right time to start promoting your side hustle? Uh, a question, uh, and not really a question, my question kind of answered. I, I did a thing this week on uh, vacuum sealing jars without getting a great big vacuum sealer. Talked about using the food saver. Talked about a way to do it with a brake bleeder. And uh, the food saver adapters, I said, I'm not sure if they'll work with my Cabela's vacuum sealer. Because it has a proprietary thing and all that, but I couldn't see why it wouldn't. Well, somebody wrote it or called it and said, yeah, it works. So we'll talk about that a bit and what that means for those of you out there that uh, own one or are considering a vacuum sealer. I'll talk a little bit about why I recommend the one from Cabela's, why I don't have a vacuum sealer on, on T-Spaz. Because I, I can't find one as good for the money, that's why. And I don't recommend stuff just to make money. Uh, more on dogs, friends, and irrational behavior. What's that all about? You'll find out when we get to it. With that, let's go ahead and take a look at a, this uh, this day in history. We're going to go back to the year 1867, October the 18th. What happened? Something that you, when I say it, you might go, "Oh yeah, I remember that from school." I don't know if they teach stuff that's like actual facts anymore in schools. So depends on how old you are, I guess. But how about Seward's Folly? Remember Seward's Folly? On this day in 1867, October 18, the U.S. formally took possession of Alaska after purchasing the territory from Russia for $7.2 million, or less than two cents an acre. The Alaska Purchase comprised 586,412 square miles, about twice the size of Texas, and was championed by William Henry Seward, the enthusiastic expansionist Secretary of State under President Andrew Johnson. Russia wanted to sell its Alaska territory, which was remote, sparsely populated, and difficult to defend to the U.S., rather than risk losing it in a battle to a rival such as Great Britain. Negotiations between Seward and the Russian minister uh, of the U.S., uh, Sokol, began in March 1867. However, the American public believed the land to be barren and worthless and dubbed the purchase Seward's Folly. 
and Andrew Johnson's Polar Bear Garden. And some of that was probably because Andrew Johnson was out of favor. Of course, he was one of the uh, one of the presidents in history that's been impeached, but he was not removed from office. A single vote saved him from that. So what did we get for $7.2 million other than a whole bunch of land? Well, today, 25% of America's oil and 50% of its seafood comes from Alaska. It's the largest state in the area, about one-fifth the size of the entire lower 48 states put together, though it remains sparsely populated. Um, I'll tell you what else I see as Alaska. The, probably the, the last freest place on Earth. Those of you that live there, I'm sure you know what I'm talking about, especially those of you that live there that don't live in one of the few relatively large cities that live far enough away from them that you just generally don't see people from them. Um, it is probably the last great frontier, and I worry that non-reality TV shows uh, that they put out, I can't even think of the names. The, ones like, there's, the real estate one's called Buying Alaska. That's scary. Uh, and then there's like uh, the, the last, the nor I don't know. You know what I'm talking about. Like, the one with the guy running around. His name's Bear, but he's always howling like a wolf because that makes sense. Stuff like that. I, I just worry that, you know, that that might ruin some of it for you guys. I know that if I were a single man instead of a married man and a grandfather at this point, It's one of the places I would have long ago looked at possibly going to and never coming back here from. Um, there's just something about having that much wilderness. Uh, the trade-off is, of course, you're near the uh, freaking Arctic Circle and it gets awful cold. But there's actually parts of Alaska that are more temperate in winter than a lot of the United States that we don't think of as being that cold, like let's say Missouri and what have you, due to the uh, modification effects of the moderation effects of the ocean. So, anyway, this day in 1867, we bought Alaska from the Russians for about seven million dollars. In case you're wondering, what what, what is seven million dollars in uh, 1867 money? Um, in 2018, it's about 120 million. Uh, doing 7 million as a base, I ran a calculation: 119 million, 258 thousand and change. Uh, price difference of about 112 million uh, from the original. So 120 million is nothing to sneeze at. But can, can you see? Can you see buying Alaska for 120 million dollars today? You can see why we went ahead and did it, can't you? It, 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 when you look at it that way, it just makes sense. And as I said, for uh, $120 million in today's money, we uh, purchased what probably is the last freest place on earth. Uh, with that, let's go ahead and get into your calls. Uh, first question I have is on uh, choosing a breed of ducks for your homestead. Hey, Jack, I had a few comments. First, I found organic Doritos today in white cheddar pretty happy about that. There's no question there. I'm just sharing something. What ducks would you recommend for what purposes? In the past, I've had Pekings. They grew big. They ate well. They were good eating. And um, they were, uh, final weight was about like nine pounds or something like that. And they laid a big egg. I'm looking for other options as far as ducks go. Thank you. Okay, doing the caller a favor, I actually um, combined two different calls there. He, uh, he, he made that opening comment about the Doritos, and then he asked the question kind of in a rambling way, and he called back and said, ignore that, and uh, he, uh, 
he 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 re asked it a little more concisely, and he left off the Doritos comment. And I, the Doritos comment was golden. I I want so I went ahead and put that back together for you because I think you could enjoy it with me on a Thursday afternoon. Anyway, so uh, <laughs> organic white cheddar Doritos. There's still Doritos, but yeah, I guess it's progress. Um, on the ducks, the thing that he left out of his more concise version is he was actually asking about Muscovy ducks as well. Uh, and I figured I'd go ahead and explain everything because that way it'll make sense when I when I kind of give you this piece on Muscovies. So uh, in the other question, when he was talking about Muscovies, he wanted to know if the main reason I would recommend them is that they're a dual-purpose bird or because they have eggs that are more chicken-like than ducks, etc. And the answer is yeah, kind of, and no. Um, on the dual-purpose, uh, Muscovies are a wonderful dual-purpose bird. They are an incredible meat animal. They don't really taste like duck. They taste like kind of a combination of duck and baby beef. It's just that good. One of the uh, the, the best experiments food-wise that my, my buddy David Sigler and I have ever done, we had a, a big old Drake duck breast. That he was coming over, and we usually have a meat fest when he comes over. And uh, So I had pulled that out with some, some deer meat and some other things, and I was like, well, what do we do with this? And I looked at it, and it kind of sort of looked about the size of, like, a piece of deer backstrap. And one of the Texas delicacies with deer backstrap is you cut it kind of thin, and you roll it in a little flour, salt, and pepper, and then you deep fry it like chicken fried steak. So we did that. Oh, my God, was that good. So Muscovies are a really good meat bird. Um, he also mentioned about, you know, clipping wings and who do you need to clip wings with. And Muscovies, you most definitely would need to clip wings. You absolutely, they fly like all get out. They won't leave though. The problem is they'll go places you don't want them, like your neighbors and like uh, above people's pools if there's like a pergola or something and poop in the pool and things like that. That that's the problem with letting your muscovies fly. We had a, quite a bit of muscovy here when we had our, our larger flock. They flew all over the place. They always came back. But occasionally they'd land in the neighbor's yard and they're walking around and they don't really hurt anything. And the neighbors were never really angry about it, but they were worried about it. Like something's going to happen. It's just a duck. Don't worry about it. If your dog eats it, it's not your dog's fault. Uh, plus, a Muscovy will lay a pretty good peat down on most dogs, uh, especially a big drake. Um, the, the drakes will not leave if you clip the wings of the females. Muscovy drakes will not leave their females. They they stay with them. When the girls fly, the guys fly. With one note, the guys fight, and they fight pretty brutally. They kind of lock on each other, and they wing beat each other. And um, when when that's going on, eventually if one gives out, sometimes the other one's not really ready to let it go. And I have seen some of my lesser drakes fly over my divider fences, and just like I'm not, I'm not going there. In fact, we used to have a, we had Arnold, Hans, and Franz, and then we had a young drake that came up. And Arnold was the old man; he was just this huge, tough drake. And so the the young buck decides he's going to charge challenge Arnold, and they go at it pretty good. But Arnold is just beating the hell out of him. And like he's now he's like in like a roid rage. I mean, we call him Arnold as an Arnold Schwarzenegger. So he's like in a duck roid rage, and he's fuming. And you, I, I swear to God, I wish I had this on camera. Hans and Franz look at each other. They're like, uh, uh-uh. uh. And they both flew over the low fence. They're like, we're not having, we're not getting our ass beat over this. And they left. So if you have multiple drakes and you clip their wings, you might have to think a little bit about then 
You know, how do you give them ways to get away from each other if they get into that conflict? The beauty, and this is why I would recommend Muscovy ducks, right? This is, a, and then we can talk about the other breeds because they're all basically the same. The main reason I would recommend Muscovy ducks is complete self-sufficiency. If you get a few ducks and a drake, you're going to have a bigger flock and it's going to get as big as you want it to be unless you cull. Because your girls are going to lay eggs. They're one of the most broody birds I have ever seen in my life. They, I have never seen one that won't go broody by her second year. Most in their first year uh, after they start laying will go broody. Um, and they will do a great job mothering and they will hatch babies. And that means that if you wanted ducks for meat and eggs, and you didn't want once you got your ducks, you didn't ever want to buy ducks again, you cannot beat them. I've had some people tell me that the eggs, they don't like Muscovy eggs and they like regular duck eggs. I think those people have mental issues. I'm sorry if that's you. I have done double blind taste, and I, I in, in our ducks, when they're all being fed the same thing, no one has ever been able to reliably tell you which one is which. They, they, they are the same. The shape of them, they're a little more round and a little less oval, so you can usually tell what, who's who by the shape. Uh, you, know, you mentioned color. Uh, they're white. Most ducks lay white eggs. The closer you get to the original mallard genetics with ducks, you get more toward the blue. Uh, Rowans will give you, you know, maybe two out of ten eggs will be blue. Pure mallards will give you blue eggs, but they're very small. So I wouldn't, if you're going to do eggs, you're going to sell eggs, I wouldn't even worry about color. Um, except that, like my buddy John Dowie uh, at Dowie Farms, he does have some mallards, and he takes all the, the mallard eggs and puts them in their little six-pack containers and sells them as kid eggs because they're small and they're blue, and he sells a six-pack for six bucks. So he's selling them for $12 a dozen versus eight for regular duck eggs as a gimmick. You could do that, but you're only going to sell so much of it, so it's, it's kind of an aside. Uh, so Muscovy's the beauty. You have self-sufficiency. You have meat. You have eggs. The downside, um, they are lazy compared to other ducks when it comes to grazing and stuff like that, which is good if you have not much land. But they really kind of hang out in an area. They don't range. They just they don't care. Um, and the other side is they, they are like egg-popping machines like two times a year, and they have big droughts where they don't give you any eggs at all. The Muscovy duck is taxonomically a duck, but it is closer to the goose family than the true duck family. And so it goes in cycles. But unlike most geese, it is a tropical bird, and while it is considered migratory, it doesn't really migrate the way we think of. It moves kind of through different areas, but it stays within the tropic to subtropics of left foot itself. That's why the wild Muscovies you see in the United States, somebody brought them here, and they kind of moved around. They never migrated themselves up into the main United States, even though they can survive. They like the tropical temperatures. So they run it, so they don't go like a goose where they only lay in the spring, because that's a natural thing with birds. We have, we have bred traits into birds to get them to break that cycle so that they lay throughout a lot more of the year. If you think about it, a duck does not want to lay an egg in September. Because it's going to have to take care of babies in October. And if it happens to be in Pennsylvania, that's not easy. So that's why they have those cycles. So the Muscovies lay tons of eggs uh, in a neighborhood of 160 to 180 a year. But you get them all in about a six-month period broken up into about three different clumps. So the problem for an egg production being steady, you could augment with that with some mallard breed. 
Or you could augment with that with some chickens, and they can all get along just fine. And I've never seen Muscovies, and chickens have a problem with each other. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. I've never seen it. On your mallard breed ducks, and every other duck is a different color, size, and shape of a mallard. They're all mallards. Rowans are the ones that look the most like mallards. Peckins that you mentioned are generally considered your best meat breed. And of regular ducks, I would agree with that. My real viewpoint is get what you like, but get what fits what you want. If you want egg-laying production, and that's your main thing that you want, and you're not just homesteading, you're going to do this for some level of, of productivity that you're going to earn a return on, Metzer 300s, uh, Indian Runners, Khaki Camels. There's some others that are okay with that, but those are your three that are going to give you the best feed-to-egg conversion ratio, and they're going to give you the most eggs per year. Khaki Campbells, Indian Runners, and Metzer 300s are all capable of giving up to 300 eggs or more a year, and it's almost un un unheard of that you don't get 240 to 260 minimum from those breeds. They're very, very prolific. And remember, a duck has 1,500 ovum when it's born. A chicken has 1,000. So you can get three, four, or even five years of relative productivity out of a duck before they begin to wane off and not give you any enough eggs to make it worth keeping them anymore. If you want meat ducks, peckins, and jumbo peckins. We just talked about that recently, so I won't go back there again. If you want a dual-purpose duck, then I would look at something like um, Saxonies would be a breed I would look at because they get very large and they're still fairly productive from an egg-laying standpoint, and Silver Apple Yard. Those would be your two that I would look to mostly as your dual-purpose birds um, from the normal duck side. If you want to have that self-sufficiency that Muscovies offer you, but you want other ducks, Muscovy ducks will brood anything you stick underneath them. They'll breed chickens. Uh, they'll brood, I'm sorry, brood chickens. They'll brood anything. They don't care. They don't do it. The problem with baby chicks is they're going to try to take them to water, and that could end up being a problem. But other ducks, they, they, we've had Muscovies take care of all manner of ducks. The, the, the problem you run into then, though, is a Muscovy duck takes 35 days to have its egg hatch, and a, a mallard duck breed takes 28. You end up with things out of, out of whack. So if you want to do that, then you want to find the Muscovy that is, um, that is going broody. And you want to collect your eggs from your other birds. You want to maybe sequester them for a couple days so that you get the count of eggs you want up. Put them on a shelf in a house at room temperature. That way they will, they will all basically do nothing. They won't go bad. They won't, they won't start to gestate. They'll just sit there like suspended animation at room temperature. So collect your eggs until you have enough eggs. Take a black magic marker. Make a mark on all the eggs like an X. Put them under your broody Muscovy and check her every couple days, and remove any eggs that are not marked because the other ducks will come up and pop eggs underneath her. I know it's crazy, but they'll do it. Uh, and, and so th there's, there's the things to think about in the world of ducks. And remember, duckchronicles.com, I've chronicled everything we've done with ducks. I'm chronicling the small homestead flock of rowans we have right now. There is not a thing that you could want to know about ducks that you can't learn in duckchronicles.com. And it's all free on YouTube. It just redirects to the playlist. Uh, there is a playlist for the Season four as well. I'll put that in the show notes. Let's take another one. This one on domain names. Hey, Jack. This is Mike from uh, Southwest Virginia. I have a question for you about the uh, difference in, and utility and importance of uh, various website domains. That is uh, .net. Dot farm, dot com, etc. So, little background. Um, 
my wife and I have a uh, small farm. We uh, have, um, it's uh, rosehillfarms.net set up. We sell Nigerian dwarf goats for uh, milk and show. Um, We're working with a guy who set up our website. We've worked with him for a while. He I have some background in uh, website knowledge, but it's, uh, it's enough to be dangerous, not enough to just get the job done. But we don't have all the meta tags and everything like that, and he's he hasn't built those into the site yet, but at the same time, he's trying to say that some of our poor performance on uh, search engine um, results has to do with the fact that we have a uh, .com versus a uh, – or we don't have – we have a .net versus a .com, and, of course, our other rosehillfarms.net. Um, etc. out there. So my thinking is that with our aspirations to just be a small uh, local business, we don't have world domination uh, with our dwarf goats in mind. Um, I'm thinking we just need to focus on the basics of website building and uh, what limited advertising we'd like to do to get our name out there rather than uh, spend more money when we already have a functioning website up with a uh, adequate domain name. Uh, quick side note, if you have any suggestions or if any listeners have uh, any, um, would like to help out with some basic website maintenance, basically I just need to someone to call when the uh, if the tires are coming off. Uh, I can uh, do WordPress and have been doing most of the maintenance and change in uh, content stuff for the website for a while. Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Um, let, let's start with the guy that's, that's redoing your website for you. Uh, I, I'm sure when it comes to like the technical aspects of building a website, he probably knows what he's doing well enough to build you a website. Um, unless he is a professional search engine marketer, and he isn't, because he wouldn't have told you what he did if he if he if he was. Do not listen to these people that build WordPress websites about search engine marketing. The majority of them, I'm not going to say all, because some of them do know what they're talking about. The majority of them don't know what they're talking about. Um, they heard some things, and they've read some articles, and blah, 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 blah. And, and, and I always, when people start telling me this, is, well, what is, what is your website, other than the name of your business, rank number one for on Google? And if the answer isn't something that, that, that makes a lot of sense, like website design or something like that, uh, you know, for them, or, you know, search engine marketing Dallas, okay, would be something that would be a little bit impressive. And while I'm not number one, I'm number three, that's still kind of impressive. Okay, yeah, maybe. When it's, well, um, uh, see, I don't, uh, shut up. Shut up. Stop talking. Go build the site. Do the graphics. Don't worry. You don't need to worry about this. You don't know what you're doing. We both know that you don't know what you're doing. Or you're so dumb you think you know what you're doing. Either way, I don't want you hurting my IQ points by spa- you know just, just, just blithering nonsense. What effect does .NET versus .com have on search engine ranking results in 2018? Not a damn thing. And anybody out there is going to say, Jack, you don't shut up. Just stop. Just stop, because it didn't matter 10 years ago, and it damn sure doesn't matter now. The people will point to this, you know, the problem with evidence sometimes is the interpretation thereof. Well, this site is a .com, and this site is a .net, and this site clearly does better in the search engine. Well, this one is a .com might be a 15-year-old website that's been constantly updated for 15 years, and therefore has lots of links and lots of trust. And this little site over here might only be like six months old. It hasn't even, even if it's well done, even if everything was done right, 
even if it has some good, high-quality links in a competitive space, it hasn't had enough time to develop enough of the trust with the algorithms of websites like Google to actually do really well in a competitive space. See, that's just, that's just part of the multifaceted things that work within the algorithms, right? See, when somebody says, well, the Google algorithm, again, stop talking. It's like that, that Billy Madison thing, like, you know, everybody in the room is dumber for having heard you speak. And in this case, they really are, because you might even sound like you know what you're doing, and then they believe you, and then they literally are dumber for having believed you. And the guy you're talking to probably has had that experience himself and doesn't know it. And the problem is everybody writes an article. People are reading articles about how to optimize a website that are 15 years old. And therefore, they're like nine algorithm updates out from the last, you know, it's just stop. So the answer is it doesn't matter. The only reason to worry about a URL extension, your top-level domain extension, .com, .net, .org, etc., would be if you are going to do a lot of offline marketing and you're relying on people to remember the name of your company and they're going to type in blah, 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 blah. Then you either have to be very effective at marketing the URL extension and making it part of your marketing or you have to be just lucky enough to be able to work out the .com. You know, be able to, because there's not a lot of those left. The .com is the most marketable. People remember .com. Everybody in the world thinks in the world of .com, right? To a degree. That's even changing. But if you're going to do a lot of advertising on the radio or something like that, you're going to do a lot of word-of-mouth advertising, yeah, then, then, then .com kind of matters. Um, but .nets do very well. My farm website was um, ninemile.farm. We still keep the site up, but we don't sell duck eggs anymore. And we were ranked number one for Dallas duck eggs, Fort Worth duck eggs, you know, the things that would actually get us business with a dot farm domain. So a lot of times what I find is these people like this individual, sometimes they're just well-meaning and they have been dumbed down by other people's stupidity. Uh, but a lot of times they're not very good at what they do. And if they feel like you think that they should have by now gotten you to do better in the search engines, they'll come up with some bullshit as to why you're not. Like, oh, you need a different domain name. Because let me tell you something, that trust thing is huge. And the links that you might already have here and there are huge. And I would rather have a .dingleberry, if such a thing exists, domain, that's five years old, that's been around for five years. That the search engines have a, even if they don't rank me well, they have a, they have an opinion that this is a trusted domain that have a brand spanking new shiny one that's a .com. Because I gotta start from ground zero with that. And there are some things that can be done with robot text files and stuff like that that I would bore you with if I explain it that would say take this authority that's here and put it over here, but it's never a hundred percent. And it, it's a pain in the ass and it doesn't work and I, I'll take a, an old dusty domain of any extension over a brand new shiny one. Okay? Now, let's talk about, you mentioned meta tags. Meta tags don't matter for getting ranked hardly at all anymore unless it's something obscure that no one else is trying to do. Or it is a very limited competitive market. So, like Dallas Duck Eggs, yeah, it, it matters. Because there's not a lot of competition. There's a few dozen. When I say competition in, on, online, I'm talking thousands or more. So, it helps a little bit. But the only meta tags that you need to worry about For anybody out there with a website, no matter what you're doing with it, is the title tag and the description tag. And it's not about getting ranked. It's about when you get found, getting clicked on. 
Think about it this way. Your title tag, 60 characters. That is if you were going back to the old days when we did newspaper advertisements and you put a headline, right? You write a, a snazzy headline that's in bold in your little classified ad, 60 characters, and then your description tag of 160 characters is the rest of your advertisement. So, for instance, I just pulled up Dallas Duck Eggs on Google, and even trying to break it, I'm still number three on Google for that. And the, the agrilicious listing at the top, because they won't take my site off, it is still me. Uh, and then uh, the Yelp one, I'm part of the reviews there. So like the top three, I'm involved in all three. But when you get my actual listing, this is what it says. Nine Mile Farm, fresh duck eggs in Dallas-Fort Worth. That's my title. That's my title. If you are looking for duck eggs in Dallas-Fort Worth, I have your attention. Right? Okay. My description tag is located just north of Fort Worth. Nine Mile Farm provides the freshest free-range duck eggs from pasture ducks, never fed soy, GMO, ever. See? It's advertising copy. And when you say all the tags, all you need for every page, title and description. For the home page, a title and a description. For the about page, a title and a description. And target something. You said you have goats, so target goats For one page, target something like maybe just a different way of describing your goats on another page, etc. And it's too much to get into, but that's all you have to do. But the dot extension is absolutely, at this point, 100% meaningless. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. And if it matters, an ant, an, an, a gnat's ass wrinkle somewhere in, in one of the algorithms then it's so insignificant as to be something to not worry about and make sure you're doing the right things everywhere else. In general, people that work on websites that say they do search engine optimization generally really do not know what they're doing. What I just gave you is all that you really need for on-site. They'll tell you, well, if your page loads slow, we live in a world where the, the slowest people, shit people have is DSL. Okay, It doesn't really matter anymore. I mean, if, you, if your, your site sucks to the point where it's obliterating uh, bandwidth for some reason, then that can be negative. But in general, what kind of sites we're talking about, no. No, it doesn't matter. Well, we have to have the, you know, the, the heading tags and all. That is all true. It was all true. It was all really, really true in 2002. Okay? It's not true anymore. The, 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 the search algorithms work primarily off of link authority. This site over here points to your site and says Nubian goats. How many trusted sites link to you saying Nubian goats? The higher you will rank for Nubian goats. That, that, that is how this stuff works. And that, you know, the big thing is you do want to come up well for your name, and that should actually be easy to do. That should actually be easy to do. And don't worry about it if you like if there's another farm and it's in like Michigan or something like that, uh, and you're in Virginia, then If you both come up and you come up second, don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. The person looking for you in Virginia is not going to, they might, we even have had calls. There is somebody in either Wisconsin uh, or somewhere up there like that on the Canadian border um, that is called Nine Mile Farm. And they must be like a co-op that not just farm, but brings other stuff in like uh, like a farmer's market because somebody I've had calls for, from them for bananas and stuff like that. It wouldn't matter for direct competitors. I'm not going to get their business. You're not going to drive to Texas from Wisconsin, right? So I, I actually have an old 
video I did on this for Five Minutes with Jack called .com.org.net Negative Greed. I'm going to link that in the show notes so you can learn more about this. But it doesn't matter. And those are the things to actually focus on. One more thing, though, with WordPress, there's tags in WordPress that are totally different than meta tags. Okay? The tags in WordPress are so that people on your blog can find all of your posts about Nubian goats. Do those two. They create pages. I won't get into it now, but you know, if you have 10 articles on Nubian goats and somebody clicks the Nubian goat tag, they're going to pull up an individual page with either all or the summary of those 10 articles as a page to itself. That can often, by happenstance, find more traffic and things like that. So that's good. Keyword tags. Forget they ever existed. One more time. Keyword tags, where you say, you know, keywords and you less, you know, Nubian, goats, Nubian, goats, whatever. All right. Ignore it. Ignore it. They haven't worked since about 2006, 2008, depending on who you listen to. Uh, anybody that says they worked after 2008, don't listen to them. Uh, let's take another one. Next one we have is going to be on uh, testing nutrient density in your food you're producing. Hey, Jack. My question is, what is the best way to test maybe some of our food grown on our farm compared with something in another farm or another superstore, grocery store, uh, for nutrient density, caloric intake, uh, protein content, that type of thing? And is it, what's the best price or is it even worth doing? Uh, background is I've got some food and I want to know what's in it. So, That's all I got. Thanks, man. Bye. Okay, so I'm going to stick to vegetation in this answer, or it gets really complicated. I will tell you that there are tests that you can have done on meat uh, to look for things that you don't want to be in there and to get the overall nutrient load, and you could do that with eggs or milk as well. But I'm going to stick to, to vegetables because it's what I think you're mostly talking about here. And, and, and really, I'm going to give you the overall answer right now. I don't think it matters. I don't think it matters from a standpoint of marketing your food. People, even if you have conclusive proof that your pepper or your egg or whatever it is has X amount more niacin or iron or whatever in it, that's not what sells food. Having sold food, I can tell you what sells food. It doesn't have what I don't want in it. That's the number one thing that sells food today especially when it comes to locally produced stuff. It doesn't have GMOs. It doesn't have soy. That's what sells food, first and foremost. Number two, I like the way it was treated. All right, so uh, it was you know, grown in a local garden. It's an, a, a, it's an egg from a chicken that's free range. That's the, an affinity for how things were handled. Number three is its local production. It was locally produced. So from a standpoint, if you like, and it sounds to me kind of like you're running like a market garden or something like that, that's what's going to sell for you. So all of your effort that involves marketing your product should be around, it tastes really good, it doesn't have any of this in it, here's how we produce it, and it's produced right here. That's your sales message. If you want to know for your own personal reasons, you can get something called a bricks meter. It's basically a refractometer, and it'll show you the what, it, what you see mostly. It's not 100%, but what you see mostly 
with a Brix meter is the sugar level in, in food. And that's why it's primarily used by people analyzing grapes and other fruits for making wine. Because if I know I have X percent of sugar, I can calculate how many pounds or, or gallons of juice that, that I can use and, and then kind of what my alcohol yield per gallon is going to be. Uh, and, and, you know, then I need, then I realize like I either need to add supplemental sugar. Uh, to get to where I want to be, or I've got a lot of it, so I'm going to need to use a, a yeast that attenuates to at least X percentage of alcohol to get a dry or fully fermented product, or this is how much I have, and I, for some reason I, I, I don't know how to make alcoholic beverages worth a damn, and I want it to be sugary sweet, so I need to know that I need a yeast that's going to crap out at, let's say, 11%, and that way I'm going to leave enough residual sugar. That's, that's the main thing they're used for. But... There is no doubt that if you had two sweet bell peppers and they were grown in totally different environments, that if one was grown a lot more nutrient-densely, it will probably have more sugar in it. And therefore, when you put it on a refractometer, it will show a higher sugar level. Additionally, you don't only see the sugar. You mostly see the sugar. So... Things like potassium and calcium and things like that. As the amount of those nutrients go up, it will affect the BRICS reading. But a very, very small amount, because the amount of nutrient in the food itself is very small. And it's you know, any individual one is going to be well within the margin of error of even a, a top-level BRICS meter. So if all the nutrients are a lot higher, you might push it up a percent, maybe a half a percent or a quarter percent. But you will see, again, possibly a marked increase in the total sugar content because fruit, food that's nutrient-dense generally is it grows more to its potential. And one of its major potentials is how much sugar that's going to have. That's why it has a sweeter taste. Okay, So you can do that, and you can get some anecdotal evidence that your food is better. Or you can see over the years that it's improving, and that's... That's the thing. Like, do you have a baseline? Because here's the other thing. Let's say that, well, I've been composting, I've been doing rock minerals and dust, and I've been doing uh, uh, compost teas, uh, and I've been doing worms, and I've been doing uh, mineral supplementation, and I've been doing this really good fungal inoculation. And your nutrient density clearly, just on the bricks reading alone, must be going up because your numbers are getting steadily better year after year after year. Okay, what's doing it? Unless you're going to go out and break it down to, well, this bed I'm going to do only this, and this only this, and this only this, and this only this, and I have these six things I'm going to do. So I'm six beds where the only difference over the native soil is one of these six things. Okay, well, you know, none of them really are that great alone. So yeah, then I'm going to have 12 beds where I have different combinations thereof, and then I'm going to have another how many beds where I have other combinations thereof, and how many beds would you have to have to do this? And then, gee, they all have to grow the same vegetable. They'll have to grow the exact same strain for this to be scientifically valid. So I look at it this way. How well is the product growing? How resistant is it to pests? How good does it taste? How good does it look? And understand that looking good doesn't necessarily mean like looking good like in a supermarket where all the peppers are as big as your face and have four perfect lobes. What does it really look like? A little spot, a little speck, a crack. These are not problems. This is food. This is real food. 
when I look at it, you have this intrinsic computer in your brain that I believe tells you more than anything else that this is high-quality food. And then you have this other computer that's hooked up to your taste buds. Actually, you have this other uh, network of taste buds that's hooked into that computer that's your brain and, and another network that's hooked into your, your, your olfactory, your nose, and goes to your brain and your eyes, it goes to your brain. And you use this, and this is how you determine, you know, the quality of your food is high. Is it better than Joe Blow's farm down the road? I don't care. I don't care. Joe Blow might have had better solar exposure this year. Joe Blow might have got a little more, a little less rain this year than me. There's a million things that can, can change things uh, on, on that kind of minute level, assuming that everybody's doing things in a, in a good, positive, organic way. Doesn't matter. Look to the quality. If you want to, you can go on Google and you can find companies that will do nutrient density testing of your produce. You can send it in. They'll test it for you and they'll send it back. It's not super expensive. It's not super cheap. If you want to do it, fine. I don't care. I would say that you are better off testing your soil than the nutrient density of your potatoes. Because healthy soil grows healthy food. How healthy? That's up to the, the, the nature gods, so to say. Let's take another one. Hey, Jack. Hey, TSP. This is Jesse calling from Vermont. I was talking about uh, wild strawberries for a ground cover. The details, I have six fruit trees, apple, apricot, plum, pear, elderberries. Um, the disturbed soil after planting regrew with wild strawberries. It was great because we get to enjoy the berries even though they're small, but what's happening is my fruit trees haven't flowered and it's been about four years. I wasn't sure if I'm just being impatient or are these strawberries hogging all my nutrients and starving out my trees. Appreciate your help. Thanks. You know, in just about any climate, four to five years in with fruit trees, unless they're all full size, you know, if they're semi-dwarf uh, rootstock, um, you, yeah, you, you should get some flowering, even where you are. I don't think your wild strawberries are a problem, but they perhaps are a symptom. Um, most of the work I've done agriculturally, other than just gardening when I was a kid by doing what the hell my grandpa told me to and picking berries in the woods, uh, has happened in southern climates. It's happened in Texas, Arkansas, and Florida. Uh, so because of that, I, I haven't spent a lot of time messing around with wild strawberries. They're more of a northern climate fruit. However, as a kid, I sure picked a lot of them. And there was a path that went uh, between the two roads that were that made up the entirety of the little town that I grew up in. And uh, then it went to the mountain. And, and through that little path, every spring, there were wild strawberries everywhere. And in my backyard of my grandparents' place, there was a great big, what they call a stripping bank. It's basically a pile left when they dug a hole that they strip mine coal out of. And it would be covered in wild strawberry every spring. And I can tell you two things about those two places. They were incredibly nutrient deficient. Um, I never did a soil test. I never even thought about it that way. But I know what was there. And it was acidic. Uh, but in spite of the fact of being acidic, neither one of those locations ever grew wild blueberry, which also likes acid soils, um, but needs a little more nutrient. And the places I can think back now where we used to find the blueberries had a little more nutrient. So in these very nutrient-deficient locations, wild strawberry grew. 
I think that wild strawberry is probably growing in this location because it's nutrient deficient and it's one of the things that's able to handle it. So I think we need to up your nutrient game. In the show notes today, I have a link to the Dirt Doctors uh, program for fruit and nut trees. And you could do worse than following it. Um, it. It sounds more complicated than it is. It sounds like a lot more product than it is because you only got to do it around the trees. And you can work out the numbers where he says for 100 square feet or 1,000 square feet based on, well, how many square feet is around this tree? It doesn't have to be all the space. Then you're doing a lawn program. So per tree, I have X square feet. Therefore, I need this much of you know dry molasses and things like Garrett juice and what have you. You could go get yourself a, a really good like organic fertilizer and fertilize these trees uh, and give them a good foliar spraying. And I would spray them, um, I'd probably spray them right now before the leaves fall so you get an opportunity to do that. And they could do that with something like carrot juice or any other good foliar spray. I would fertilize the hell out of them right now going into fall. This is something people never do. Um, and I would fertilize them again in spring. With something because and not just fertile, uh, not just like compost or something because compost in cold weather doesn't do a whole lot because it relies on microbiological activity that kind of doesn't get up and going until the soil warms up because all the little little creatures in there they just kind of sleep when it's cold they don't do a lot so you, you what you have to understand is like your trees don't just need that NP and K they might need something like uh, chromium. Or they might need something like silica, or they might need something like iron, or they might need something like calcium. And a lot of times there's, you know, in a teaspoon of soil around that tree, there might be as much calcium as that tree needs for a year. In a teaspoon of a tablespoon, seriously. But the problem is the tree can't get it. And it requires that, so what happens is there's something called exudates. So on the root of that tree, it'll squirt out a little goo. And that little bit of goo is basically some carbohydrate and some sugar and a little bit of fat. We put carbohydrate and sugar together, mix it up in a goo and bake it. What do we get? We get cookies and cakes. Okay, This is a cookie and cake that's designed to attract a little bitty uh, soil organism that specifically can help the tree get uh, calcium. So the little organism comes up, sucks up the little cookie and cake that was left for it, and it poops, and its poop is calcium in a form the tree can get. So even with the nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus, a lot of that's locked up in the soil, and we need that biological activity for the tree to get at it. Well, if the tree doesn't get it in the fall before it gets cold, and you go back into spring, and when the tree is leafing out, and you're asking it to give you buds, because usually trees give you flower buds and then leaves. A lot of trees you get flowers, and they bloom before the first leaf shows up. Well, that's a lot of energy you're asking for. And if it didn't get good fertility in the fall, and now it's cold as hell in spring, how's it going to get any of it? It can't. You throw all the compost you want on there, and it's going to be happy in the summer, but it, it can't really get a lot of that nutrient. So a good bioavailable organic fertilizer, and given the age and the problems you've had up to now, I would use a combination of a liquid and a solid. So kind of a time lapse and an instant IV is what you're doing there. I would really look at following Howard Garrett, the Dirt Doctors program, going into next year. Start now with whatever it says you should be doing now and do it in the next year, and I bet you you'll have a lot better results. Because um, I think that's what you have. I think you have some level of nutrient deficiency, specifically your three primary nutrients, your NPK ratio. And, again, the wild strawberry is just its a trooper. 
Those of you in northern climates, I mean, if you have this growing around anywhere and you have ground that you'd like to have something growing on useful, go dig it up and transplant it. And the best time to do that is, is actually kind of like almost right now. It grows little crowns, uh, little crumbs, just like uh, you get for other strawberries. And if you know where the plant is, and it's obviously easiest to identify in the spring when it's got flowers and, and berries on it, but if you kind of mark it and you watch it till it goes dormant and you dig it up while it's dormant and you transplant it right now to later in the winter and it comes around next spring, it'll just take right off for you. You can transport it uh, early in the spring. It's going to have some transplant shock, and it's going to take some while. But once you get it established, it's it, it, it can it's not going to steal nutrient. It's going to survive where there ain't much. So, Because I'm telling you, like one of the places I used to find this stuff growing was basically a bank that was like 95% little chipped-up pieces of shale. There was hardly any dirt there. And it grew like crazy. And that little path I'm talking about, that area was where an old coal breaker was. And some of that ground was pretty much coal slush. I mean, there's parts where if there's enough coal slush, nothing grows. The place we call the Black Desert. And they, they closed the breaker down there in the 30s. And it's still nothing grows there. So it literally kills plants. And even though some of it was there, and other things did grow in this place. It wasn't that kind of a, a thing. But it was not a place you'd want to grow corn, I'll tell you that or apple trees, or what have you. And and so this stuff can just handle low-nutrient situations, tough situations other plants can't handle. So what you have is an indicator species. So I want you to address the needs of your trees as though they're seriously lacking in nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus, and other micro-macronutrients, uh, but not because of the, 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 the strawberry, but because they're there. And I wouldn't remove them or get rid of them, that's for sure. Well, let's, uh, let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is James in West Tennessee. I have a question for you. How do you feel, is there a point where you are reluctant about promoting a side hustle until you kind of get it off the ground? The details are I'm starting a farmstead on my new land that I have, and right now I only have quail eggs and quail meat, and I'm not opposed to selling those. And I have a Facebook page I've shared with a few people. But I intend upon raising chickens and possibly some other animals starting in the spring, and I'm reluctant to share my page with people who aren't close friends, try to get them to like my page and create a little more outreach until I do more. But i kind of kind of not sure if that's the right thing, or if I should go ahead and try to get as many followers as possible before I start raising the chickens. Just curious for your input. Thank you. Before we go forward on this one, just something I should have said on the last one with the strawberries. The one thing is don't be surprised if when you bring the fertility up, if you start to have less wild strawberry. And it'll probably find little places where it'll kind of find its own little niche. Uh, but you'll find that a lot of times that when you actually improve soil, a lot of times weeds and plants you don't want will go away. But sometimes plants you kind of like, lamb's quarters, for instance, may not be as productive anymore uh, because they grow in lower nutrient situations. And when you pop the nutrient load up, those things kind of atrophy off for you. So I'm sure you'll be able to find a place to do some transplants and all if you just want to keep them around. Uh, so now moving on to this question here, side hustles. When should you pro start promoting your side hustle? Immediately. Yesterday. Today. Tomorrow. The next day. I, I kind of understand what you're saying. Like, I only have this couple little things I'm doing now, so if I start promoting myself to people that don't know me, they might not really care because I don't have that much. So... 
Now, if you're talking about a large advertising budget, we got we'll, we'll put that on the shelf for a second because um, that actually matters. When it comes to, like, <clears throat> let's say that you uh, start sharing your pictures on Instagram or whatever it is, and, and, and I'm Joe, Joe Blow, and, and I, I'm looking online, and I find you in a tag or something like that on Instagram, or I find you on Facebook because I'm friends with one of the friends of your friends' friends, and I look at your picture, and I'm like, I don't care, and I scroll past it. How does that hurt you? And don't feel bad if you start to realize like how dumb this idea really is that you should wait, because uh, big giant companies do it too. Big giant companies with multi-million dollar uh, CEOs and a bunch of people in suits, and they're rolling out a new product, and they don't want to start promoting until they have everything. They do it too. Because the reality is the memory span of a person online with things that they, they, they found not interesting is about 3.3 tenths of a second. But as soon as they went past you, they forgot you existed. They don't care. So if you're promoting yourself constantly, you're not trying to avoid disinteresting them. You're trying to, if you do it enough, and they see you enough, eventually they find you interesting in some way, and then they follow you or want to know more about you. And, and that's the game. That's the game. Um, if you know, we're learning about. I'm learning about Instagram. I, I I ignored it for a long time, and I know I shouldn't have, but it's just not my thing. But when Dorothy said, "Well, I'll do it for you," done. Uh, and, and you know, I, one of the people I still have a lot of respect for. Uh, it's been around about as long as me is Gary Vaynerchuk, and and Gary put it this way. He said, "Your hashtags on Instagram, especially when you're new, they're currency. They're your currency. Make sure there's 30 hashtags with everything you post, and you know, Facebook." Really, hashtags don't do nothing on Facebook. They work, but nobody uses them. I, I put them on Facebook posts once in a while just for humor, like hashtag sad, hashtag moron, hashtag you're doing it wrong, things like that, right? Well, that stuff actually works on Instagram. And in your line of business, I would get involved with Instagram. I honestly would because, you know, there's so many little things like you pictures of the birds and this and that, and one or two or three or four pictures a day spread out throughout the day. And the same thing with Facebook. Post your pictures. Post your stuff. Blog about what you're doing. Remember what I said about domain names earlier. So set up a blog and start blogging about what you're doing and what your ideas are and what your plans are so that when you build it up, you already have this track record, not just with people but with search engines. Because your site gets up. Why do you think the Survival Podcast does so good in the Google search engines? Because Jack knows SEO to a degree, and I really put a lot of thought into it in the very beginning of the show. Um, but what I do now, I just make sure there's a title and a description tag. I don't do anything. But when I put out an episode, if you know, like if you search for the title specifically where it's easy, you know, obviously you would rank for something uh, that's that's totally non-competitive and seven words long, uh, you'd be able to find it. You could generally find a post that I do in the Survival Podcast in Google in seconds, in seconds after it goes live. Now, there are some plugins and stuff I have to make that happen, but Google does it because Google says this site, this is a, this is a kind of a, even though they don't list me as a news site, their algorithms look at the site as a news-like site. New content every day, and it's trusted. Well, you only get there with frequency and doing things. So 
I wouldn't worry that somebody would be like, ah, oh, he doesn't have what I want. I don't like him. And you, and you think that later, if you go to pastured pork or something or whatever you're going to do, they're going to be like, oh, well, you know, I was looking for some pastured pork. But I remember four months ago or four years ago, I was on Facebook one day, and I saw this guy, and I checked him out, and all he had was quail. So I'm not, I mean, do you see how ridiculous that is? And this is what you need to understand. Whatever your products are, you want to be associated with your products. Your brand is you. Your brand is you and your farm. Your brand is you and your farm. Because if I say pastured chicken, a lot of people do that. If I say Joel Salatin, you have a positive opinion, if you know who he is, if you're part of his fan base, you have a positive opinion before you even know if I'm going to say pastured pork or pastured poultry. Doesn't matter which one I say, or beef, or eggs. It's it's a positive thing because it's Joel Salatin. Oh, he's good. I like what he does. You're marketing you or your company. You're branding. You're doing personal brand or company brand. And then the products become the spokes on that brand wheel. And, you know, you get customers for what you have. And, the and, and, you know, you say your friends and family, good. If you're selling to them, good. Because when you have something new, that's I don't care if your friends, your family, or strangers you get on Craigslist. You sell your new product to your old customer first because it's the easiest thing to do. And I don't care what you're in. If you build a plumbing company and you have a book of business of people you've done plumbing business with, and you look around and say, you know, the plumbing business is kind of seasonal. This is when the problems happen. This is when people have backed up septics and stuff like that. And you know what else is seasonal but it kind of runs count? And I don't know if this is true. I'm just making examples here. Uh, kind of HVAC. So you say, you know what, we're going to start doing HVAC service. And I don't want to do it, so I'm going to hire somebody with some HVAC experience, give them a truck, and, and send them off to do business. Yeah, I'm going to update all my website and any advertising I do and any business listings I have anywhere. But, I mean, the first thing I should do, one way or another, is contact my entire customer base and say, we appreciate having provided you plumbing service for, for the years, and we now also offer service for your air conditioner and heating needs. And if you do that, almost immediately... You're gonna If you have a big enough customer base, one person in there is going to be like, shit, my air conditioner's been jacking up and I've been meeting to get it checked on. I don't really have a company for that that I know and trust, but I trust him because he's always taking care of me as my plumber. I'll give him a shot. Or, you know, his quail eggs were great. So now he's got goats. I've always wanted to have goat milk or goat meat or whatever. Or I've always wanted to. You know, you're going to get some piece of that market that's going to pull through for you. So it's the, the, the question you're asking is, when should I part a tr plant a tree? The, the answer is 10 years ago. Yesterday, today's next best, right? And, 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 and tomorrow's better than next week. And next week is better than next year. But the real answer is 10 years ago. You can't go back in time, though, but you can act now and today. So that's what you should be doing. And this is not specific to you. This is anybody... In any side hustle business, whatever, there's no such thing as having too much business. There's having more business than you can handle, but that's good. That's good. If you can, you know, even if you get to the point where you need to finance a business like a small business loan or something, if you can go to a, a loan officer at a local bank 
and say, here's all the potential customers I have right now. And I don't mean because I did a market analysis. These are people who have contacted me and said they will buy from me, and I need to ramp up production to meet that. That goes a long way toward making your case to being a good risk for financing. Now, maybe you don't want to do that, and I'm not saying you should, because I think a lot of times small business loans get people hurt. But if they would do it, then what you know is you have a solution. And that's exactly how we built things here. We built it till we had more people than we could serve, and then we kept upping our production. And, and, and that's what you should be doing in any business that you have. Uh, now, as an aside, this is why I like non-physical goods, memberships and software and things like that. Um, I like that because there is no such thing as too many MSB members. There's no point where I go, I, I, I can't make another 50 this month. I just, see? So I'm not saying that's what you should do. I'm just saying that's one of the reasons I like that for those of you that are more built toward the, the service side of things, membership side of things. All right, let's take another one. This one, um, just a little update here on a question I had and a listener had. Jack, this is Josh. Uh, comment on your food saver, uh, your Cabela's uh, vacuum sealer. Uh, I bought that on your recommendation, and uh, I had no idea that it had the proprietary uh, bottle attachment thing. But uh, I bought the food saver um, jars from Amazon, or the food saver jar sealer attachments from Amazon, and they were just fine. So uh, that's what I bought. I didn't know any different, and they worked. So just wanted to let you know. So, I, I mean, I don't have a, a ton to add to, to, the, to this one, obviously, because, you know, it is what it is. I, I did want to just real quick uh, mention why I recommend the Cabela's commercial-grade 15-inch uh, vacuum sealer. It's pretty expensive. List price is like 370 bucks or something like that, and I have a link to it in the show notes today. They make it, well, and it's a commercial one. They have a pro and a commercial. Don't don't go below the commercial-grade. Um the 12-inch one is like 300 bucks, And I would say you, you really shouldn't make a decision over that 30 bucks because 3 inches may not sound like a lot, but when it comes to what you can vacuum seal uh, with larger cuts and things like that, it's, it's a pretty big difference. And if I want to do a little bitty bag on my great big one, I can do it. But if I want to do a great big bag on my little bitty one, I can't. So I really recommend that. I've had a bunch of people ask me, why don't you have a vacuum sealer on T-SPAS? And it's because every vacuum sealer other than the Cabela's commercial one that I've bought, and I'm not saying there's not any other good ones. I'm saying I've been through like five of them, five different models. All of them went to uh, vacuum sealer heaven. And the last one I had such a, a, a fit of rage with uh, that I took it out to a rifle range and I put a 375 Holland and Holland uh, slug through it. And, it, yes, it was fun. It was it was like the printer scene uh, from Office Space on steroids, uh, but I have not felt like that. And I also wanted to kind of give you guys some tips today, and I really won't go into the jar thing because we just did that this week. That's why this guy called in, and thank you for it, for letting me know, uh, and you reminded me to go ahead and order those adapters. Now, I have a vacuum canner. I can can like, you know, a dozen cans or jars or more in one shot with my vacuum canner. So why... Would I want this? Well, because when I buy a you know a one pound bag of coriander seed, and it's only going to be like three or four jars, and that's going to take like you know a minute a jar, it will take me longer to go out to the garage, get the vacuum canner, and bring it in. Like I use that when I have a bunch of stuff to do. So 
to me, having that adapter, it just makes sense. But I wanted to give you some best practices for vacuum sealing that won't make you want to kill your vacuum sealer no matter how good it is. Now, there are some things called chamber vacuums where you can like vacuum seal soup, and those are a lot more expensive. Uh, my buddy Brian Black at uh, ITS Tactical uses them for like his blowout kits and stuff like that, and they're, they're a lot more high-end. But with a regular vacuum sealer, when you start doing the vacuum, everything, including the air, starts coming out of the bag, which includes any liquid. And if you get just a little bit of liquid, specifically any kind of water, obviously, or oil, where the seal is, the seal is going to fail. The seal is going to, not might, the seal is going to fail. Even with the double seal, it's going to fail. So one of the things I do is, I, let's say I have a bag and I'm going to put uh, uh, some chicken breast in it. You just, you know, you do your socks where you kind of bundle them up and you pull them onto your feet. Kind of like that, except fold them over. And then open it up, and that way when you put the food in there, you don't rub it, and then you unfold it, right? So like a cuff, like you cuff your jeans in reverse. I know you don't cuff your jeans, I don't cuff, but you know what I'm talking about. Like you, your pants are too long, so you cuff them up. Kind of do that in reverse with your bag, put your food in there. That's one thing that does a lot of good. Another thing is take your meats or whatever you're going to do, put them on like a cookie tray, throw them in the freezer. Freeze them solid, then vacuum seal them. They'll seal perfectly, and there'll be no moisture coming out of them because they're frozen. Uh, I do that with, like, we make meatballs, and we make it for the workshop. But we also, just for ourselves, like, we'll, we'll make, like, eight pounds of meatballs. And we'll break them up into half-pound packages. We put them all in the freezer, on a cookie tray, sitting on some, uh, you know, foil or some uh, wax paper or what have you. You can even double or triple stack them like that, then, with the wax paper between them. Freeze them solid, then throw them in the vacuum seal bags and seal them. Not only will they not fail on you... But they won't crush. Meatball, put it in a vacuum seal bag, and then you got a flattened meatball. So by freezing them first, you get a nice, perfect seal. The other thing is any kind of little pointy, pokey things will, it will most likely put a little hole in your bag, and it takes the tiniest pinprick, and your seal fails. So if you have anything that's got bones and stuff with it, it's just worth the extra bag. Put it in there. Take the bag and fold it over and then shove it in a second bag and then vacuum seal it that way. And that way it can pull the air out of the second bag. If you get a bag where the seal fails, even though there's a failure, it might be really, really small, take a pin or a knife and poke a couple more holes in it, stick that bag in another bag and reseal it. If you have to vacuum seal something that has some moisture, you can't freeze it, you don't want to, you need to get it done, whatever, Use the pulse setting on your vacuum sealer. You won't get every single molecule of air out, but you'll get most of it out. Far more than you know, dipping it a, a Ziploc bag in water method, which works pretty well as well. So you hit pulse and you watch it. As soon as you see the first bit of moisture begin to come up the bag, hit manual seal. You do that and you get the vacuum sealer I recommend. You will be a happy person. You'll be a happy camper. No matter how good your vacuum sealer is, if you have anything pokey, it will poke a hole in the bag because you're pulling it so tight against it. And if you get liquid where the seal is, it will fail. Not it might fail. It shall fail. All right, we got one last one, and we'll wrap up for the day. Hey, Jack, this is Josh. I am listening to your um expert counsel, and you were talking about the dogs in the history segment. And my question is, 
know sort of about the psychology of a person that would quit listening to you because of your view on not wanting to be a friend of somebody who thinks that uh, dogs are just another animal. Um, I mean, if, if they don't like you because you don't want to be their friend because of that philosophy that they have about dogs, why would that make them quit listening to you? I, I just don't understand people like that. Even if they don't, you know, want to hang around you or they don't like you, you still have such good information that you put out on a daily basis. I just don't understand why you would lose listeners. But then again, I know people are unpredictable and sometimes crazy, so that could explain it. But if you would like to share your thoughts on that, I'd be more than happy to hear it. Thanks, bud. Well, you know, in a way, this this almost sort of kind of ties in with another question I might be doing, uh, a written question. I didn't really read the whole thing today, but the first line in it, why does everything have to be political today? And, and I'll say my thoughts on that because it's not exactly the same thing. But as I go through this, I mean, I think about some similarities to it where, you know, somebody says something today that has absolutely nothing to do with Donald Trump, but... Because that's what people have their eye on, for example. It's either pro or anti-Trump. And if and they're either agreeing with it because they agree with that or they're disagreeing with it because they disagree with Trump or they disagree with disagreeing with Trump, whatever, right? And even though maybe you're quoting something like Benjamin Franklin. And so that's that's a thing. And it kind of, I think, you know, I'm not a psychologist, uh, but sales and marketing are, in, in a lot of ways, psychology. Uh, productive psychology, I guess, understanding how the mind works. So I can kind of surmise, based on my life experience and, and, and my professional experience, some of what's going on here. So for those that aren't familiar with this, what I said during this episode was that I prefer my dogs to most people. Of course, I know my dogs, and I don't know most people. But but even that said, like the person that doesn't see the dog is, is something more than just another. Like it's different than a cow, or different than a uh, you know any other animal out there. They don't understand the special nature of dogs and the special relationship between humans and dogs, and the dedication that dogs have to people that rivals, to me, any other animal. The closest thing would probably be horses. And, and I, I don't think horses even really get close. But there are some horses that I've known that are some pretty amazing animals too, but nothing like a dog. And, and what I said was, I, if, you, if you don't agree with that, I probably don't want to be friends with you. And, and I want to clarify what I mean by that. And it's not in any way to save people from the, And I said, I'll get people that won't listen to me. And I probably do. And there's things I say every day that turns people off and they don't ever listen. But that, that same authenticity, because I don't give a shit, makes people very loyal followers and listeners of the show. But if, if you told me, well, I don't really care about dogs at all, I probably am not going to like, okay, now you're not going to be my friend. What I'm saying... What I'm actually saying is the things that make a person understand that fundamental canine-human relationship and make the person value that relationship also makes them treat people better. It also makes them value the people that are really loyal better. It's the same piece of psychology there. If you, I'll tell you this, if you like to fish, you probably are going to make a better friend to me than if you don't. It doesn't mean I won't be your friend if you don't fish, 
But I find the things that make people love being a fisherman make them better men and women, in my view, because they have a certain personality that's going to get along with me better. Not just because we both like fishing, because of what that means. You think about like when you go fishing, what that means is that you you like to go find your own food. You like to have adventures. You like to be challenged. You see, it's so much more than just we'll go fishing together. Because we may never go fishing together, but we make we might make better friends because we're both fishermen. The same with hunters and, and things like that. But it goes to another level with dogs. And so today's picture for the show, and I've been making you know different pictures instead of just the standard ones. This picture is about four years old, so my grandson's much younger. I think he's about like three and a half, four years old in it, because he's seven now and he's on his way to eight. Um, but he's very little, and my German Shepherd Max is very big for even German Shepherds. This is a dog that when he was in his, you know, you call it like his fighting weight, you know, like his perfect uh, athletic form, he was 140 pounds. So this is a big dog. He's now he's old. He's put some extra weight on. He's about 150 pounds. This dog's head compared to the boy's head, he it looks like a lion with this kid. And my grandson is laying up on his side, and he is knocked out of sleep. He's in his pajamas. He's spending the night with Papa and, and Grandma, and he's laying on Max. And Max has got a bed on the floor, and this kid is out. And this dog is up. And he's looking, and you can tell this dog saying, this, this kid is my thing. I'm protecting this kid. There's no way that some stranger would have gotten near that kid without losing an arm or worse. And my, my pit pointer mix, Charlie, same way. And he's, char, I, I looked at different pictures and picked this one because it worked best for a meme, right? Um, I've got pictures with Charlie like that with him, up in bed with him, his back up against him, facing the door. And what it says in that meme is, you're damn right I prefer my dogs to most people. And when I find a person this dedicated to my family's protection, we can discuss it further. And, and it's the loyalty that those animals have, the dedication they have, the things I've seen dogs do for their owners without a thought. And it's not the same as when a human is willing to risk their life for somebody else. The dog, I don't believe the dog has the intellectual capacity the human does to do the calculation the way we do it. But it's innate. This is my human. I am there for them. And I've seen it with service dogs that give people their life back. And I'm not talking about, you know, the emotional support peacock that damages that thing. I'm talking about people that literally could not live the life they live without their animal. And I don't know a person that would say, okay, I'll follow you around and let you know when your health is, is kicking into a problem and you need to see a doctor. And I'll dedicate my entire life to being at your side to do that thing. I will stay with you and help you cross the street and take you wherever you go because you can't see. And I will dedicate my entire life to making sure you can go places because you can't see. I don't know any human that would dedicate themselves to another human that much unless they had unconditional, total love for that human. And that's what dogs do. And I've heard people say dogs can't love the way humans do. You're right, because they're so much better at it than we are. Because it's 100% and it's 100% unconditional. They do not care. This is who I've bonded to. This is what I'm about. This is my thing. This is what I'm dedicated to. 
And when I say you probably won't make a good friend to me, if you don't see dogs that way, if you don't understand that in dogs, then you have something that special looking you right in the face and you can't recognize it. Well, what kind of friendship are we going to have? Because when, I talk, when I'm talking about true friendship, I'm talking about the person that it's 3 o'clock in the morning, my phone goes off, they need me, and I'm out the freaking door. Okay? So if you can't see that dedication in an animal, how do I expect that you'll see that dedication in a human, and therefore we're not going to connect that way? And it's not going to be because I'm going to make a conscious decision. This guy doesn't like dogs, so he can go F himself. No. It's just going to be, I'm telling you, we're not going to mesh. As to why people would stop listening over something like that. It makes me think of another time when somebody did over something that really didn't make any sense to me. Because first of all, I don't go into religion much, but I was asked. I was asked because of a history segment and a comment I made in it in another show um, about communion in church. Because I am a deist today, which means I believe in a God of some sort that I cannot explain. But I don't believe in any organized or revealed religion. I am not a Christian. And because, I guess, of my morals and ethics and my personal code, a lot of people assume that I am. But if you stick around, you get to know me, which I think people do through the show, and that might be another part of the psychology. Like Somehow, because we're friends, I've betrayed you by saying something you wouldn't expect me to say, I guess. Um, but somebody wrote in and asked, well, on the difference between communion between Catholics and Protestants, Catholics believe that communion is, in fact, the body of Jesus Christ. That there is a, a transformation in it that makes it the actual body of Christ. And at the same time, it's still a piece of bread or a cracker. It's both at the same time. Protestants believe it's symbolic. Is the case the Catholics make biblical? And I was born and raised Catholic. I went to Catholic school until I managed to get myself kicked out. I also was deeply involved with the Methodist Church after I left Catholicism. So I have the viewpoint from both sides and from a, stu a studious standpoint that I won't go into. And I won't explain how I did it now and redo the whole thing. But basically I said, yes, it's a totally biblical thing. You can totally make a biblical case for it. You can also make one against it, but it's pretty hard to say that the case you can make for it isn't biblical. And then I said something that upset, not the person that asked the question, another third-party listener. I said, now, of course, personally, I think it's preposterous. Because I don't believe what you believe. And then I went on. And I got this like soliloquy of like a thousand word comments in the, in the blog about how awful that was. And you, you, you couldn't leave it alone. And you had to say this. And I can't support you anymore. And like, what did you expect? If I don't believe what you believe, and what you believe is somehow supernatural, a God thing, whatever, of course I believe it's preposterous. If I didn't think it was preposterous, I'd believe it too. That's what not believing those things makes you feel. Personally. That doesn't mean I, can't, I don't respect your belief. And if you don't believe what I'm saying about dogs, that doesn't mean I don't respect you as a person. I don't respect you as a human being. And maybe you've just never had the opportunity to have the interaction and relationship with canines. And maybe you, maybe you and I would make good friends. And what I'm telling you then is, if you did, you would. I'm saying it's an intrinsic thing in human beings. That the people that make good friends to other people generally make good friends to dogs. The other side, unless there's something 
wrong with the dog, unless the dog has been somehow emotionally and physically damaged in some way beyond reaching, dogs always, always, always make good friends to people. The reason I have such a value for dogs is because they give you the kind of friendship we should all always give each other. And they always do it. And I've seen dogs that you just think there's no way this dog's coming back. And I've seen them turn around. Our dog Lucy, running the streets, feeding herself from what she could kill. Complete stray. Touch her, she peed. She quivered. She cried. And in a week, you had a dog that you thought, like, if you told somebody that, they would never even believe it. Because she was in an environment where the energy was right, she was treated differently. And once dogs, once you break through that that thing, whatever it was that damaged them, then that's yesterday. Uh, and there might be some things, you know, they might they might kind of pull away when they think they're going to get hit or something, even though you're not going to do it. But when you really get past it, that's that's yesterday. Dogs live in now. And that is that is amazing. So that's why I value them so much. As to, as to how that can turn people off, you know, the truth is, I can try to understand it, but I really don't give a shit. I really don't care. Because it's more important to me to be authentic to who and what I am with you guys than it is for me to have another 100,000 listeners by the end of next year. I, I, I would love this show to someday have a million people listening to it. I, I would love that. But I will not compromise who I am, what I am, or what I say for one more, or one million more, or a hundred million more. I don't care. I have a great life, and I believe I have a great life because I live it with integrity. And if that pisses somebody off, you know, there's a lot of places to get your information. I just like to believe that what we do here is a little bit different and a little bit special. With that, we've come to the end of another show today. If you like the work that we do and you want to support us, if I didn't upset you because I love my dog so much, <laughs> you can support us by joining the Member Support Brigade. All you got to do to do that is go to the survivalpodcast.com and click on Members. You'll see all the uh, great stuff you get as a member. You can sign up there. It's about 18.3 cents an episode. And uh, I promised you guys that have a, a sale coming. And I, when I got back, I was completely discombobulated from being gone, and I didn't get it done. Uh, I will give you guys a – so don't join today either. I will get you a discount code tomorrow if you've been thinking about joining the MSB. And I'll run that like through next Friday or something like that. But I'll get the details put together and get that out for you guys tomorrow before the expert council show tomorrow. But just be aware of that. And just if you are a member, if you ever have been a member, or if you're ever going to be a member, thank you because without you, I couldn't do what I do and doing this show five days a week for you. Uh, that brings us to the other way you can support us. Just do your online shopping at tspaz.com. Um, I have a, you know items every day, but you can go there, and as long as you start shopping there, you help support us no matter what you buy, so it's painless. But I have a product for you today called uh, the Con Recon Julian Peeler, the Julian Peeler, a Julian Peeler from a survivalist. Hey, man, look, I love to cook, and I also don't want to die young. I really don't. I want to make the most of my dash, so I want my dash to be a marathon, right? That's a new thing. We're going to have to work on that. I, there's something in there, isn't there? I want my dash to be a marathon. Uh, anyway, so julienne peeler is basically it's like something like you peel a, a, a carrot or a cucumber with, but instead of peels, you get little strips like noodles, and that's why I like this thing. Lots of people use it for artsy, fartsy, chefy type stuff, and I do put some flair on some of my food once in a while, but in general, I just like food to taste good and look good. Um, what I use this for is to make noodles, vegetable noodles, to keep my carbohydrates down. 
And it makes really great, basically, angel hair pasta-style noodles out of things like zucchini. And I even have for you a video that goes with the review that's up today. It shows you exactly how to do that by adding salt to change the texture. And if you just you know cut out three or four noodle meals a week and replace them with something like this, you can improve your health. Well, that's a survival topic. And this is German-made. Um, it's not expensive. They're, let me click on it. I think they're eight bucks or nine. No, they're twenty bucks. Okay, so they're twenty bucks. Uh, the the best one on the market. I believe in certain things. You buy the very best because you can afford it. So I always say buy the best you can afford, and then sometimes you buy the best because you can afford it. Like if you're making a decision on a kinship implement that you're going to use for years over ten bucks. And, and one is a hundred times better, and I believe it's that much, than the one is ten bucks less, don't do that, right? Lifetime value, lifetime cost. Uh, everything I recommend is something I own and use, and I feel that way about it. I wouldn't recommend uh, that you use it. I'm telling you, guys, you can go through T-Spaz, you can come to my house, and it's like you're walking through tea, like a T-Spaz showroom. Everything I recommend, I own. Uh, so you can take my recommendations to the bank. That brings us to our song of the day today, and this is kind of interesting based on the analogy that I used with the dogs and the whole communion thing that made the guy mad and, and leave. Um, this is by a, a, a band called Bad Religion, and they never were a favorite of mine. I heard them here and there, and I definitely have heard the song, but I, I really, like, this isn't a great song to me, but it does have a good message, in my opinion, and it's called American Jesus. This song was written... Uh, in response to George H.W. Bush, the, the first George Bush, when he said that we would win the, the Gulf War, again, that's the first Gulf War, the one I was involved with, uh, because God was on our side, basically. And to me, you know, I, I respect your beliefs, if you're a Christian. I used to share them, and, and they were very meaningful to me, and I would never demean them in any way. And I would never disrespect you for having them. And, and I, res I, I really respect you as a person for having a moral commitment to something and, 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 and staying with it, including a faith, no matter what it is. If it's a good thing, and in general, I think it's a good thing. So I, I'm fine with that. But if you think like if you think God's going to like make your sports team win, I think your view of God is too small. And even if you think your God is going to make your nation win a war, I think your view of God is too small. Because if, if God is to be the God of all men, and in fact the whole universe, then believing that your nation is somehow protected. Now, blessed is one thing, but somehow like made to be stronger than others. I know some of you believe that. But in the end, the reason we won the war against Iraq is because it was Iraq. And if you saw well, the hardware they were using and the, the state of their troops compared to what the United States is capable of, it wasn't because God ordained it. It's because an M1 Abrams beats the hell out of a beat-up old, barely working T-62 or T-72 Russian tank. That's why. Because we completely emaciated any semblance of an Air Force before we even began the war that they would have. All their planes ran away to Jordan. You're defending against the most advanced air force in the world without an air force, okay? This is why we won. I mean, they have a good point here. And, you know, it's up to you how you want to take that or what you want to take from that. But I don't believe Jesus is American. And I think some people do. 
I think some people do. And I think that in general, in a culture, God figures get adapted to that culture in kind of a retroactive way. We picture Jesus as a white guy, I guess, you know, instead of a person that's Aramaic. I mean, that's what, that's what the Bible says, right? You don't have a lot of white people running around the Middle East, do you? But we like to see, instead of us in the image of God, God in our image. And to me, it's kind of short-sighted. And again, you can believe what you want, but that's the impetus for this song. With that, it's been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast, helping you figure out how to live that better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Exercising his authority